Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. I have the great pleasure to once again welcome Dr. Norman Blumenthal to our conversation. Dr. Blumenthal is the Director of Trauma Services, the O.L. Zachter Family National Trauma Center. He's also an adjunct professor at Reitz of Yeshiva University and Furkoff Center of Yeshiva University as well. He's one of the go-to people in this country. If there's a question about we have on mental health, generally you'll see that rabbis and educators have Dr. Blumenthal on their speed dial because he's been a tremendous resource for all of us. And I thank you, Dr. Blumenthal, for taking time thank from this busy day. Uh, I, we're living in unusually difficult times because of the war in Israel. And I'm just wondering to start with that as the uh, opening question. You deal with trauma, but I can't imagine that there's ever been a trauma like what the hostages and the families of the hostages have suffered. Is there some basis to be able to speculate about what they're going to be going through post-freedom? Okay. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on and how much I always appreciate the special relationship we've had over the years with you, with Rabbi Reese, with the the CRC, the whole Chicago community. And it's really been a very integral part of my experience. Um, So that's, that's, you could say we've never had it before. There is interestingly a category of trauma called missingness in fact the person who's done a lot of the work on that is a woman from israel orit katz who's really one of the first people to have written about this idea of missingness which until um let's say october 7th was largely people who disappear uh people who become homeless people who are uh, abducted or, or people or sometimes in in very high conflict divorce situations where one parent will run away with the kids and nobody knows where they are. People, and then of course it came up in Surfside when when people were missing, when especially when there was still some hope and anticipation that there would be survivors. So so this and and Gilad Shalit was also a, a case of missingness and his response and what he went through has been studied in this area. So it is a unique area of trauma. And as many as Arif Katz describes it, it falls somewhere in the middle on the binary of death and life, because usually we think you're either alive or you're dead. But there's that murky area in the middle of when people are missing. And I think that's what many of the families of the hostages have been have been going through, not knowing if their loved ones are alive or dead, not knowing if they'll ever see them again. The other hand, knowing that they were captured alive and hoping for the best. And then, of course, there's the lingering trauma. Of, of being in an abducted situation like that, um, and especially for children, and being separated from protective figures and not understanding where they are, being in the dark for some so long. Uh, some of you may know that uh, that young girl, Kendall Hend is her name, the one from Ireland, uh, Emily, I believe is her first name, that she's still talking in whispers, even when she's free. And that's such a classic example of how trauma lingers, even when you're out of the traumatic situation. So I'm sure it's going to be something that's going to be studied exhaustively. Um, and in fact, this year, I, I, this was planned before October 7th, but I will be doing a presentation at the Nefesh conference on missing this, because as, as a member of the trauma team, we have dealt with situations like that, obviously not of this magnitude. And has it moved over even to children, adults in the United States, somehow does it impact us emotionally psychologically knowing that there are others who are missing 
So it's interesting. One of the many mistakes we made, I, I just mentioned to you before we started to talk, that the, the webinar I gave immediately after October 7th, when I just plugged in what I knew about trauma in general, was so off because this is such a unique trauma and that subsequently I really, really, really like to remove it from whatever the you know YouTube world or whatever. Um, but there were a few mistakes we made. One of them was I, I naturally anticipated that we could protect the very young children from this these horrors. So we can tell them what happened far away. It's not going to happen here. And that's just not the case. We're, we're seeing very clear trauma responses from children as young as four years old. Um, and an interesting piece is that from this, this horrific events, the one piece that the children, and particularly the very young children, are most focused on and most traumatized by is the kidnapping. Is, is the idea that they could be wrenched apart from their family, from their protective parental figures, and to be on, at the mercy of very evil, violent people. And they they are the bulk of the questions that we're getting mostly from parents and teachers about the responses from the very young children are questions about kidnapping. In fact, I often tell the story, a friend of mine had a very precocious son, and this goes back many years, who was reading already at a fifth grade level when he was like in kindergarten. And when he applied for first grade for yeshiva, the principal heard about him and said, want to see if he could read so much. So he took out a newspaper and he said, you know, read it. And he's, you know, just rattling away, reading the article. And at one point came across the word kidnap. And the principal said, what does kidnap mean? And he said, it's a child sleeping. That's what kids knew then what kidnapping was. If he had been reading it today, he would know very well what kidnapping is. So as we talk about missing people, and and, and that is the nightmare for 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 these children. I'm uh, Next month, I'm taking the senior class of Ida Crown Jewish heard. to Israel. And one of the questions that's come up from parents is the balance of volunteer versus trauma. Um, okay. In your mind, if uh, if people are visiting Israel, is it important mm -hmm. for them not just to volunteer, but also to visit the places where these atrocities occurred? Is it important for them to hear the stories? Or is it mm -hmm. better to protect adolescents mm -hmm. or even adults? Okay, so again, you hit on the two big questions already in your first two questions. I guess you're doing this for a while. But um, <laughs> th this is a very common question we're getting asked is, how much do I expose myself to this horror? Do I watch those live stream uh, videos from Hamas of the atrocities that they committed. You know, do do we see pictures of the condition of the bodies? Uh, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman from YU was on uh, MSNBC, I think it was, and he talked about how his wife was part of the Hebra Kaddish and what the, the condition of the bodies, even as they came back. Do we look at that or do we not? And um, we really have, you know, we have to strike a balance. We have to expose ourselves so we feel and we're moved by what's happening and we're motivated to go to Israel and volunteer to say to Helen and Davin, but we can't see so much that it's going to destabilize us. I think, uh, in fact, I co-teach a class with Rabbi Rothwax from Tinek. You know, we were discussing this and he cited the Gemara that I think really hits it on the nail. The Gemara is the Shorai knows The Gemara in the Durham asks when's an ideal time to visit a sick person. And they say in the middle three hours of the day, because the first three hours, the person just slept, he looks good. So you're not going to pray for him. In the last three hours, he looks so sick, you're going to give up on him and not pray for him. But the middle three hours, he looks sick, but looks like he could recover. 
And that's a template for what we have to do. We have to be exposed, but not overwhelmed. Is there a way for a person to know when it's too much, to know themselves that they've crossed the line and they need to pull back? Yeah. So you take your pulse. and We all have different tolerance. You know, some people can tolerate certain viewing or 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 exposing themselves, let's say even secondarily by by anecdotes to a certain amount of horror and others have a lower tolerance. And it's really, uh, it's an element of self-awareness. That's that taking your pulse, knowing what you can handle and what you can't. I'm giving an example. I was, when October 7th happened, for my recreational reading, I happened to be reading the book, Palestine, 1936. This is a book about the uh, Arab uprising in 1936 uh, during the time of the Shiv. And it was very bloody and it was very violent. And I had to put it down. I couldn't keep because of what it, it, it no longer was history. It was current events uh, after October 7th. And I was too much for me. I was being too triggered. So I knew, even though I'm a, I do trauma work, but I, I realized that I had to put it and I put it away and read something else. And then uh, after a few weeks, I picked it up again and was able to read it. But it, it's there's no universal. I don't think there's one universal line in the sand. Uh, I think it's a very individual matter. And literally, you can take your pulse and see if your pulse is faster, that this is... If that's, I think I, I meant it more figuratively, I guess, but it's knowing, what, knowing, you know, again, it should motivate you. It, you should know Sabaol, you should feel the connection with uh, brothers and sisters in Israel who are suffering. But you, if you're overwhelmed, you'll be, you'll be paralyzed, you'll be handicapped. It should be enough so you're motivated to write the politicians, to attend the rally in Washington, D.C., to, to, to again, have them in your mind and your tefillos, to take on some, uh, maybe some uh, charitable or some religious uh, undertaking uh, uh, for the well-being of our soldiers, all the kind of things we, we can do here in the States. And people who are drawn, I found myself last night, uh, I was watching CNN, and it was just constant. There was a uh, a description of what the hostages were going through when they were hostages. And it, I turned off the TV at a certain point. I just felt like I heard too much of it already. And on the other hand, I was feeling like, no, I should hear it all. Is there some kind of, uh, of guideline that you would offer parents for their children? Uh, and I'll give you one more example. I remember growing up we're about the same age. When when it came to Yom HaShoah, the movies that we would see, the 16 millimeter movies we would see, were filled with horrific scenes that no longer do we show the kids anymore. Mm-hmm. What was the standard in those days? Is there some? Mm-hmm. Is there a guideline that we don't do those kind of things? We don't talk about this, or the parents just say use your seichel, which is complicated for. <laughs> well. Yeah, it's not just in the cycle. I mean, our children are also exposed to social media and to the internet. And also, we're at a time, again, if we're talking about our comparable ages, you know, having been born around the time of the Civil War, you know, it, uh, it, it, you know, we grew up at a time when there were five TV channels. And maybe, you know, at least in New York, we had three newspapers, you know, about, uh, you know, two in the morning and one in the afternoon. So there was a limited source of news. 
Today, there are thousands of news sources all competing for your attention, and sometimes the more sensational they can be, and sometimes the more uh, explicit in terms of violence they can be, the more they're going to draw your attention. So a part of this is a, actually a golden opportunity to teach our children how to manage internet and social media, to know sources of news, and to know that they, they, they cannot get drowned, they cannot get inundated by it. They have to be in control of it. <clears throat> and this, again, exposure to the horrors of what's going on is is a very good is a good time for us to because it's going to be around. We're not going to we're not going to go back to the rotary phone. So teaching them how to have mastery over this the, these the, you know these devices which are wonderful when used responsibly. But how, um, how, how do you do that? In other words, I, for example, at the beginning of the war, I met with students and I said, get rid of your TikTok accounts, get rid of this. That was coming out of the Israeli government because they knew what Hamas was going to put out there. Um, and then a few days later, I had a speaker who came and he asked the kids, how many of you have TikTok accounts? And almost all the hands went right up and I'm thinking, oh, I was successful. How do you teach it? <laughs> so my my approach, if if I were to dumb it down, is I, I, I say, who owns whom? You know, who's like one of the things, for example, some of the people talking say to tell parents that when you're sitting down for dinner with your children, turn off your phones. I don't agree with that. I keep it on and I let it whistle and dingle and buzz and do all this stuff and I ignore it because right now I'm with you and that's more important. That's a very powerful message to children. I did the same thing with davening, by the way. I dafka have my phone on when I'm davening and it makes me feel good when it goes off. And I ignore it because I'm now saying my davening is more important than this. So, so I think the 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 message, the way the way I think we have to teach our children is who who's the slave and who's the owner. You know, are you a slave of the of your device, or are you the owner of your device? Um, and everybody thinks they are, even when they're not. But can you ignore the the buzzing or the, the whatever pops up? Even if there's no reason, if it's not davening at dinner, I'll look at it in 15 minutes. Then you're in control. Or can, or can you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to be on social media for, for the next half hour and look at the clock. And my half hour is up. It doesn't matter if the most incredible things are going on and you're going to having FOMO up to the gazoo. Can you turn it off? Then you own it. Then you're using it to your benefit. When it controls you, when you can't stop, when you're up all night because you can't put it down, then then it owns you. So you're telling parents, we tell parents model good behavior. Um, should people tell their children just you have X amount of hours, uh, work with them on that? Is that the best way to get started or yeah. is it another yeah. method? Or, or, for example, one of the things they, they used to talk a lot about in terms of TV shows, but I think could apply to social media as well, co-viewing. Sit down with them. What are you watching? Well, TikTok. And let them learn how how the how the devices and how the shows are being programmed and the algorithms that they're using to control you and to draw you in. Now, once you understand that, you can be the master over that. I used to do that with my kids when they were younger with with commercials, with you know, like even in magazines. I sit down, okay, let's figure out how Pepsi Cola right now is trying to get you to buy Pepsi Cola, and we would analyze the advertisement. We'd see all the tricks they do. Now they understand it, and they're not going to be 
you know, with, in a mindless way, drawn to buy or whatever something that they need, like a home head. Because so I think we can do this. Some, yeah, I, I know. Mm -hmm. I know some parents like a punitive approach. Just you do it, you're in trouble, and which only encourages the kids to sneak, because there's yeah. kids and they're normal. So you're saying take it in and teach them. Is the yeah. way. To Teach them to use it constructively. Teach them to look at it critically, not just to, to fall, you know, not just be mesmerized and hypnotized, but but look at it with a critical eye. So you understand you can appreciate something that's entertaining or informative, but you're not going to be swayed by it because it's a it's a very powerful mind controller. And you need to control your mind, not not your phone. Now, you've had probably the most intense four years uh, between COVID and now this war that anyone can imagine. And how is it impacting mental health services around the Jewish community? Is there greater need? Is it Are things kind of leveling off? Have we figured out how to address everything? Hmm. Well, you know, we're very good at figuring out what to do when it's over. We're all Monday morning quarterbacks, so it's it. I'm, I'm sure we'll understand better when we can look back, you know, retrospectively to what happened and what was useful and what was not useful. That's just human nature. I remember I had a supervisor once who was graduating from a postdoc program, and he said every time he graduates, he has the same feeling. Just about when he figured out what they're trying to teach him, they tell him to leave. Um, so it that that can that can happen. I think the major shift, and I've, I've spoken this oh, quite a bit, and this could probably be the whole our whole conversation. But there's a shift taking place in, in provision of mental health services. I don't think just in the Jewish community, in all communities, which is because of the. I, I'm sure you're aware that of the meteoratic rise of anxiety and depression among children um, in recent years, even before COVID, it was already happening, and the need for mental health services have just become so enormous. So we're shifting from the model of I'm going to identify this kid or that kid and refer him to a specialist to bringing mental health into the school. So, for example, OHEL has a MAP program, which is Middle School Anxiety Prevention Program. We are training parents and teachers how to handle at least moderate levels of anxiety because we just can't we can't reach every anxious kid. How to we're teaching and and we're teaching the children. Uh, all of the children, coping mechanisms, stress inoculation techniques. Now, the very severe cases we're still handling, and we have a social worker coming into the school once or twice a week, and uh, we have groups, et cetera. But, but, but we're, in a way, deputizing teachers to become mental health professionals. And I think that's the wave of the future. I think we're going to see teachers coming in the future will be doing I mean, I often say when I was a kid, again, we're, ret we're, we're reflecting to childhood. I'm sure you can say the same, Rabbi. If, if you went to your Rebbe when you were in fifth grade and said, so-and-so called me a bad name, or so-and-so was picking on me, and what was your Rebbe's reaction? It, Deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Deal with it, ignore it, move on. Yeah, yeah right, right. Now, oh, we have a whole process, we'll help them, we have bully prevention programs. Now, that's the world we live in. I'm not, I'm not saying that in a critical way. Um, and there are reasons for that, in many respects, why that has happened. But today, we provide, in other words, the school of hard knocks is shut down. Today, we give over coping mechanisms, and therefore, it's going to be part of education. But at what point do we move away? You know, it used to be teachers had to teach, and they had right. to teach a subject matter. And then right. now we have to teach to diverse classes, because we, as opposed to saying we, I 
higher and lower students, or I have students who have Zets flesh and those who don't. Now I have to do, you know, uh, all sorts of instruction within a classroom. Now you're proposing that we have to start having the teachers convey mental health issues. At what point do, do schools fully transform from being an academic institution to being truly another home where we're taking care of uh, students' needs well beyond the academics? You remind me of um, Yeshiva Darche Torah, which is, which is in my neighborhood. Uh, at one point, was doing construction, so they had to move out of their building and they landed up moving the kids into what was uh, previously a psychiatric hospital, but that had shut down. And the principal said to me, you know, it's kind of appropriate, you know. <laughs> but um, we, you know, uh, I think what's, I think where the trend is going. And again, I often like to quite quote, the, let me balance the geography a little bit, but the great New York theologian and philosopher Yogi Berra, who, who used to say that predicting is very difficult, especially about the future. So I'm I'm not going to try to predict, but I think where we're going is that more and more kind of core instruction is going to be taken over by the computer. That's already happening in schools. You have kids going back and forth from the computer to the teacher. Um, and that has a lot of advantages. First of all, no teacher knows as much as the computer does. So you can get a ton of information. The computer can assess the student and tailor its instruction directly to the student, which a teacher has 32 children in the classroom, can't teach it. 32 different levels the computer can give immediate feedback to administration so the administration can see how all the children are doing and so it it, it lends itself to, to classical instruction so i think some of the classic instruction not all but some of it will be taken over by technology and the teacher will be busy teaching the children how to use the technology in an, in an effective way but also addressing social and emotional needs i think we're going to see that shift happening um and we're seeing it already i think well to share with you my favorite quote from yogi berra is if you wake up in the morning and you don't know where you're headed you may not get there so <laughs> it, we do have to we do have to have some level of planning if you had your ideal school would you say that i do want to pass that off to the computer and have the teacher take the role of the the modeler of the uh of the assessor not necessarily in the hard educational pieces, but in the in the bigger picture of of life. Yes, I think so. You know, Albert Einstein, another well, was a New Yorker for a while, well, New Jerseyan at least. Um, you know, used to say that education is what's left after you've forgotten everything you've learned. So I think that the the, the global picture. The, what do you do with this information? How do you use that information? Is probably conveyed much more effectively by a human being. Um, so I do think there'll be room for instruction. I'm not saying we're, teachers are just going to be play therapists. Um, but I think it is going to free up, the, and we're seeing it now, it's going to free up the teacher to handle social and emotional situations. I'm no better example than I said, like the bullying. And, and I'm saying it without an iota of criticism. By, but bullying is no longer a rite of passage. You know, bullying today is something that the school addresses and takes care of. That's the world of 2023. So um, we're seeing it already. And and the, the teachers, any teacher will tell you, they're much more involved in the social and emotional adjustment of the child than they ever had been in the past. And in terms of general community, the, the adult community, 
what are the major issues that you're seeing in in terms of mental health of the Jewish community in general? Well, clearly stress and anxiety. I mean, just 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 to be mainstream in the Orthodox Jewish community, there's so much pressure between yeshiva tuitions and camps and bar mitzvahs and weddings. There, there's there is a lot a lot of pressure. We we live in the fishbowl. Everybody knows everything about everybody else. Um, so I, I just think that people the levels of stress and or anxiety. I mean they're they're different, but one feeds into another. That is of concern. And then I think also if if we get to a little bit of the younger age, and I don't want to open up another can of worms because we'll be here all day, but um, I, I think that. We have our our approach to human sexuality and marriage is so di- has so digressed from general societies that uh, again people especially in our community where we have one foot in both worlds um, this is impacting a lot on our young people's development and on their the, the, how prepared they are for marriage and for being in a family. And I think, and, I, and I'm not saying something that all other mental health professionals don't know and that we're not trying to address in an effective way. But I think those would, if you ask me, I'd have to say those are the two biggest issues um, I, that we're facing. How is OHEL addressing those two issues? Okay, so first of all, I'm again, OHEL is it huge organization and so we have 1400 employees and it does everything from foster care the geriatric care early childhood housing they have over 100 housing for uh, adults with disabilities uh, so it's a it's a very big it's almost a monstrous organization um for for us on the trauma team so we are trying to do a lot of maybe it's a little bit more in the school-based team but we work together is prevention uh that's why we again like the anxiety program um, we, we've developed um, a, a high school program where it's not out yet. We've been working with Bnei Akiva schools in Toronto, um, but we're developing a four-year curriculum on mental health and in the spirit of the ounce of prevention to, to prepare young people. And again, what was usually acquired more organically and naturally in the past to prepare in a more didactic way for a lot of the stresses and pressures uh, in life. Um, certainly we're addressing these matters in, in the clinics. We have uh, FIFA service clinics. And for just to give an example, one of the new trends, um, and this very much is along the line of what I'm talking about, um, in, even in therapy for children is to not treat the children, but to, to work with the parents, make the parents, again, deputize the parents to be the therapist. There's a program called SPACE, which I don't remember on top of my head what it stands was developed out of Yale by Eli Leibowitz. And it's a program where a child referred for anxiety uh, doesn't see a therapist. The parents meet once monthly, and the parents do the therapy in essence. And we have trained our entire our staff in these methods. And Dr. Leibowitz himself, we we contracted with to to train our staff. So we're moving in that direction, as I'm sure all other facilities and clin- and clinicians are moving. And I, I assume that a lot of the causes of the stressors and the marital issues. We will never be able to put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, the, uh, you know, I like to say that we don't have, you know, the people talk about the uh, financial crisis, the day school tuition crisis. And my response very often is it's a, it's a standard of living crisis. Growing up, 
I lived in an apartment growing up. You know, my I used to I joke with people. We had three pairs of shoes. I had my Shabbos shoes. I had my former Shabbos shoes that were the weekend Shabbos shoes. And I had the gym yeah. shoes you only wore for gym. And now we, I see kids walking in with uh, with sneakers that are probably more expensive than some of my suits. You know, <laughs> we have the, that that piece. But will we ever get some of it back into the bottle, or is it just we have to move, go with the flow? So you know, I, I, I'm not a hand wringer. You know, I, I don't believe in the good old days. I think you know, or we should have many more. I think it was Sam Levinson said we should have many more good old days in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, you know, the clock moves forward. And I think we do, look, we, we have time-honored traditions that have remained immutable for, for thousands of years. And that, is, of course, doesn't budge. But we move with the times. And um, so I think we always have to have, uh, you know, a little bit of a view of what's changing and where we're, as you said before, you know, where we're going. Um, because... Uh, times change, and we have to adapt and adjust to those changes. And, and we've had that throughout our history. You know, the Beis Yaakov movement. You know, it was something that probably would have been unthinkable a hundred years before uh, Sarishnir and its inception. Um, so we're, uh, or for that matter, Tarim Derech Eretz and Tarim Mada. You know, which now is more and more mainstream, but again was innovative at one point. But it was, it was great people. Who saw where the trends are going and how we're gonna we're gonna survive only if we can keep up without compromising on our values. No, so in essence, we deal with the realities, but we have to appreciate those realities as well. Well, as I said, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with Soloveitchik once said, you know, what's the difference between a secular historian and a Jewish historian? And he said the secular historian looks at the past to understand the present. The Jewish historian looks at the future to understand the present. You know, we we believe we're going somewhere. We're 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 we have an end zone, uh, and as Jewish people, and then for the world at large. So yes, I I think we we're we are forward looking, and we we hold on to what's as I said, what cannot be changed, but we take it and bring it into the future. And and I think there, I think this this event. I was meeting with the uh, school, the uh, Ramaz High School, meeting with the faculty, Ramaz High School. And I was mentioning how we're having young, like I just mentioned before, five year olds. So one one preschool teacher told us that during free play, she saw a five year old boy trying to tear the head off of a cloth doll, and he was saying, "I'm an Arab." You know, there there these have these young children acutely aware of this danger. What are they going to look like nine years from now when they're coming into high school? And I think we have to think like that. You know, they they have a different experience than your current high school kids. When your current high school kids were five years old, they didn't know about these things. Uh, it was there were fairy tales and there was make believe and the, you know, but it was not the harsh realities that these children are aware. And they're going to be different kind of kids. And if we're we think like that and we're prepared for them. We're going to take very good care of them until we're surprised by whatever else happens after that. But I do believe that's, I, I, I think that's how we have to think. I, I do believe that. And on that note, Dr. Blumenthal, our time is up. I want to thank oh. you so much for this opportunity to have this conversation. Yeah. I, I thank you. It. I enjoyed it. <laughs> it's fun, and it's fun to learn from you. And we will continue to rely on you for your vision and your expertise and help us help others so much better. Okay. Well, very- bring me in next time for something happy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay. Very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.